Well, hello and good day, magnificent human being. What a privilege and honor to be with you. I hope that wherever you are in the world, you're doing tremendous. We have another amazing episode of the podcast for you today. We have a professor of physics, Dr. Brian Keating on the episode, and we are talking about the origins of the universe and consciousness and losing the Nobel Prize, his award-winning book. We discuss a lot in this episode. We talk about the three biggest questions, the origin of the universe, uh, what preceded our universe, the four noble truths of the Buddha, the Nobel Prize, and pursuing the Nobel Prize, why Brian stopped pursuing the Nobel Prize, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, why we have to have meaning, why struggle is necessary, the power of the Ten Commandments, understanding worship, exploring God, the golden rule, and so much more. I know that you're going to enjoy this episode. If you like it, please take a screenshot, share it on your Instagram, leave a review on iTunes. If you want to toss a buck in the bucket on Patreon, go to patreon.com forward slash Matt Belair. Um, any amount is amazing. Even a buck helps tremendously. Thank you so much to all my patrons. Thank you to everybody who's left a review, who's made a share and left a comment. It helps tremendously. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But the best thing that you can do if you want to support the show is one kind act today. Do something nice for another human being. Even better. Take the kindness challenge. Do three kind acts a day for a week. Go out of your way to do it. And if you do it, you may experience what I refer to as a universal wink. Something weird will happen to you just for you uh, so the universe lets you know that you're on the right track and if you do that definitely hit me up at Matt Belair let me know how the experience was if anything happened and uh, I always love seeing hashtag kindness challenge or three kind acts because I know that the podcast is working. If we can uh, be kind people, then we're really doing it. Um, for those of you guys who are interested in coaching and you want to really discover and uncover your life purpose, more meaning, you want to break through limiting beliefs and programming and design your preferred reality mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. If you want to demystify peak performance, law of attraction, and all things mystical, esoteric, and learn the tools, systems, and strategies of the world's elite entrepreneurs and athletes hit me up matt at zenathlete.com or go to the coaching form mattbelair.com forward slash coaching and if you represent an organization you're an entrepreneur and you want to do some training for your staff just hit me up let me know what your situation is and we will design something specifically for you so i think that wraps it up go to mattbelair.com sign up for the email list stay connected and uh, let's get into this by coming into a powerful state of peace and coherence so wherever you are in the world to stop what you're doing take in a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath and just let it out slowly filling every cell and every muscle and every fiber of your being with peace joy connection empowerment confidence i'm ready to take on this amazing episode with dr brian keating hello and welcome to the master mind body and spirit show i'm your host matt belair Today's guest is a professor of physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences in the Department of Physics at the University of California. He is a public speaker, inventor, and an expert in the study of the universe's oldest light, the Cosmic Microwave Background, or CMB, using it to learn about the origin and evolution of the universe. He is a pioneer in the search for the earliest physical evidence of the inflationary epoch, 
the theorized period of expansion of space in the early universe directly after the Big Bang. He is the author of Losing the Nobel Prize, a story of cosmology, ambition, and the perils of science's highest honor. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brian Keating. Thanks, Matt. It's a true pleasure to be with you. Man, it's, it's so great to be connected. I had uh, the pleasure of looking at some of your work. Um, it's mind-blowing. And uh, when we had a conversation on the phone, um, I wanted to ask you before we dove in, but I know we have an hour, and with you, I feel like we could talk for like 10 days. But what you told me about the three questions that, that you really pursue. So maybe you can start a little bit about your background, all the amazing stuff, and we'll dive into your work. Yeah, exactly. I, I was... Uh, I was kind of always, always curious about only the biggest questions that a person could ask. And to me, there are no bigger questions than the following three. And that is, how did the universe come from a non-universe, if indeed that happened? What preceded our universe, if anything could be said to have pre-existed our cosmos? And then the last question, uh, or the next question is, how did life emerge from non-life? So the universe, you can think of as creating chemicals, the, early, the smallest, you know, lightest chemical elements, hydrogen, helium, lithium, things like that. Uh, and then the question becomes immediately after that, how did life turn into conscious life, turn into the life that you and I, uh, you know, represent, that we have the ability to think consciously and connectedly and to use those powers that we've been endowed with to, to create technology, including a medium to stream across the internet you know, thousands of miles away from one another. It's just fascinating. And to have that, uh, you know, it's just, it's just to answer those questions, I think, would be, uh, is really no bigger thing that a scientist could aspire to. Yeah, holy smokes, those are super deep questions. So it's amazing. You know, I think I've gone down the rabbit hole of trying to explore it from a spiritual perspective and it's, um, you know, mindset and meditation and things like that. But yours is a hard physics, astrophysics, trying to connect the dots. So I'm so curious about what you found and, and what progress you've made. Is there one question that's been more challenging than the other? What have, you, what have you come up with? Yeah, I mean, I really felt like if you look at the biggest, you know, picture view that you could have, I'm a pilot also in my spare time, which is not very copious, as you might imagine. Uh, but uh, I like to look at the, you know, 30,000 foot view of the earth. And, and looking down, you get a real sense of things on a broad scale, but you miss the details, you miss the fine details. She started flying, you know, really high performance planes and, and, and stuff in the last few years. And, and I miss flying down, you know, slow and low down near the surface of the earth because you miss those details. You miss that connectedness with the, with the power, the freedom, the, the artistry of, of flying. And for me, you know, the real deepest mystery is consciousness and like, how do we emerge? And I feel like we have so little understanding as a physicist like myself, we have so little understanding as to the physical processes that lead to consciousness that it's almost hopeless in some sense. So I stick to easy problems like the origin of the universe because there it's, you know, you're not dealing with personalities, you're not dealing with, with humanity in any way. The most complicated supercomputer I always say is this one up here that, not mine, but, but uh, the, the computer that sits on your shoulders, man, it, it has so much power, so much complexity, and the fact that it is, even in a small sense, able to contemplate itself. There's nothing else we know of anything remotely like that. Yeah, well, I love how you said the easy question. I was like, oh my goodness. So you've researched the Big Bang, and I looked at your book, and one of the pra uh, the the chapters was on religion, consciousness. So how did this? Um, what do you think? Where's most important to start? Like, what I'm curious about is in this um, field, in these deep, deep questions. What 
what can we know that can help our reality? But also like, what are some of the astounding things that you've discovered that make us just question and know like what reality is, where it came from? Because I've had, you know, a few physicists on that talk about AI. Um, as we talked briefly, I've had people who've explored space. We'll talk about the ET phenomena. I've had people talk about consciousness. And I think that, you know, for me, experiencing different things, having so many different guests, the only thing that I know is my direct experience. And it's interesting, the more that I learn, what am I learning that's allowing me more freedom, more um, understanding of what's actually happening here? Yeah, so, so the, the, the statement that was said, uh, I believe by Socrates, you know, was, was something to the effect that I am the smartest person because I know how little I know. And really, that's the impression you get as a, as, a, as a professor, as a father, as an educator. You get the sense that what you, the more you know something, the less you actually understand of the total, but it doesn't make you want to give up. I always say uh, it's like you know, when you expand a ball, like the area of the ball goes up um, and the volume gets even bigger. Or as uh, John Archibald Wheeler, you know, the teacher of Richard Feynman and many other of the greatest physicists of the last uh, century, he said, you know, the job of science is to make the scientific island of knowledge bigger. But as you make the island bigger, the coastline of ignorance also gets bigger. But the amount that the boundary gets bigger is slower than the amount that the area gets bigger. That's just geometry. That's math. And, and so in that sense, the job is satisfying, but it's not a one-to-one. -one. You don't just get out exactly, you know, 10% more knowledge for 10% more effort. Sometimes you got to work for years and years and years for one tiny, piddling, miniature, little sentence in a book or in, a, in an article. But when you have those insights, those flashes, those glimpses of true hidden reality that was unknown before you, and sometimes those insights are not very flattering. In other words, you learn that the universe is not as simple as you uh, were simplistic enough to think. And sometimes the universe hands you lessons in the form of, uh, of, of, of truly potentially humiliating losses and, 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 and pain even. Uh, but your job as a scientist is to get back up and keep going after nature because she's not going to give up her secrets easily. Yeah, 100%. And so, well, when people are, are exploring the, these concepts around physics and the Big Bang and, and things like that, so on these questions, which one do you think is the most fundamental and what have you found to be true in that search? I think if the origin of the universe has come from a preceding universe, that would have probably the most dramatic ramifications, not only on physics and the fundamental laws of physics, <clears throat> as I explain in the book, but also it would have dramatic ramifications for understanding a philosophy, the quest for knowledge, epistemology, facts, knowledge, pursuit, ontology, truth, you know, uh, existence, etc. And then, you know, perhaps tantalizingly, I know you delve into this, although you're not, you know, strictly, you know, kind of theologically inclined, maybe. Uh, but, but the deepest questions are always those of origin questions. How did we get here? What did we or come from? Who were, you know, I always say, like, what's the most important day in your life, Matt? Like, what's the most important day every day of the, or any day of the year? What day of the year is the most important day to you personally? Birthday? Your birthday, right? Yeah. So, it, it, you know, why is that? It's just another day, right? You know, uh, but it's because it's the moment that you came into existence. And it's the moment, according to some traditions, the universe could not go on unless you had come into existence. Uh, and, and, you know, I like to say that when I'm in an argument, you know, I was born the day the universe couldn't go on anymore. But, uh, but in reality, you know, the world, not only did, did your life begin, but your knowledge, your ability to appreciate the world came into existence at that time, too. So in some sense, the origin, the birthday of the universe itself 
is the most important question. It doesn't mean it's the most, uh, it's the most fundamental or, or the most important to other, other disciplines, but you clearly couldn't have life without the universe and you couldn't have consciousness without life. And so at some level, it is a foundational fundamental question in its own right. And that's the question that drives me the most. And the thing that I've learned the most is that you truly have to be humble when pursuing it. And sometimes in my life, when things like more base desires had gotten in the way of the purity of the quest, that uh, things like accolades, honors, prizes, awards for me personally, uh, and even for people you know, I was friendly with, <clears throat> that, that desire got in the way and provided an impediment a desire, and as you know more than anybody, you know probably you know the some of the foundations of suffering come from this desire. And where in my life I gave a talk in Jackson Hall, Wyoming, to the governor of Jackson Hall, Wyoming, and other people, and I called it the Four Nobel Truths of the Buddha, because you know this desire, this you know pursuit of accolades, sometimes can obscure the scientific quest. And once I learned that that was an idol, it was a falsehood, it was something I was pursuing that I really shouldn't be pursuing, in my case, the Nobel Prize, obviously. Once I lost that desire, I became much freer, much more compatible with the way the universe is going to evolve, and for me to understand it for its own sake, for its own pleasure. And, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely ashamed, I'm not proud of it, but one of my early motivations was to win the Nobel Prize. It's the highest accolade, biggest honor. It's like the Oscar, a Super Bowl ring, and, and you know, an Olympic medal all rolled into one for scientists, at least. And so I wanted to win it, you know, and, and that drove me. And now it's almost the opposite is true. Not that I wouldn't, you know, maybe accept it. If somebody gave it to me, I always say, you know, if people, people just say, oh, you should have sour grapes, Keating. You know, you're, 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 you, know you, you would take it if you wanted it, if you want it. And I say, well, the only way to see if I'm a hypocrite or not is to have them offer it to me and see if I accept it. Yeah, wow. Well, you covered a lot of ground there. And I think that's a good point of, of like, I think that's a lot of motivation is to acquire something and to have a worthy goal, I think is great too. But I think that from what you're sharing, it's just like the acknowledgement of that goal is, is kind of eroding other part, parts of your life and existing that might be a little bit more important. But exactly. having the brain power and the actual capacity and the uh, knowledge to know that that's a, a, a possible outcome in your life is extraordinary. Not a lot of people have even that opportunity. That's an extraordinary opportunity. And, and so, I, try to, mm-hmm, yeah, I try to communicate that to my students, especially you know, to, to be aware of these kind of uh, pursuits because, you know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of what we do in science, at least what I do, I build telescopes, telescopes that are located at the extremes of the earth that are located at the bottom of the world in the South Pole, Antarctica, or on the top of a mountaintop in Chile or a rocket that goes into space. And most of the time you're not thinking about, well, how am I going to get like these components and these people and this travel and this thing? And that? But you're really kind of like a small business person as a, as a scientist. You have to coordinate logistics, supplies, management, leadership. And, you know, we're pretty smart. Physicists are pretty smart. And we have healthy egos. And so a lot of times we think as physicists, we can do anything. You know, management's easy. You know, we can just manage, inspire, lead, et cetera. And it's really hard. And people don't appreciate. And I always say like, you know, just because the universe is the biggest startup that ever was, is, or will be, doesn't mean that you're an expert in entrepreneurship or being a small business person. Uh, it's more of being a startup than just starting up. And so the universe started up. Our job is to figure out how. So I spend a lot of my time nowadays learning about business and management and companies and small, small uh, entrepreneurship ventures because those are what's analogous. And I would not have done that had I not had the experiences that I detail in the book. It's, it's really a memoir what it's like to be a scientist aspiring to the greatest things 
And I say, you know, it's like you may not win a Webby or whatever top number one podcast, you know, especially if iTunes. Well, I'm not going to say I love iTunes. We love we love Tim Cook uh, out there. But, you know, let's just say you might aspire to be number one. And, and I have a podcast, too, with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. I would love to be number. But most people don't get the brass ring, right? I mean, you spend most of your time striving unless you were trying, you know, time like thriving in the spotlight. And, and that's just a normal course of events. So get used to it. Enjoy that. And, and I think you'll be a happier person. That's at least what I tell my students. Yeah, those are all really great points. And I'm curious to know your perspective of this, because some of the things that I've heard, and I can't know it's true, but it seems to make sense that um, some of the scientific institutions in certain departments, maybe physics, um, exploring big ideas have old information and theories that they're really trying to continue forward. And if you're presenting something new that might not be the mainstream, it's harder to get funding and it's harder to pursue that. I'm wondering from your um, experience, if you see that to be true, if, if, if the scientific community is willing to take on new information and explore these ideas or some of the old ideas have the, the best information, because especially when you get into quantum physics, physics is just like, like you've said, in my experience anyway, and I'm sure yours is more uh, profound, is that when you make a discovery, it's like a fractal. It's like, ooh, like I just discovered an ocean. That's new. Yep. And then all of a sudden, there's infinite stuff in this ocean. You're like, oh, crap. You know, it's like, it's exciting in one thing. And then you just, you, so you know the expansion is infinite. And I feel like, um, you know, the, from what you're speaking about is if, if the scientific community can be more open to that and the funding is a big thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it certainly drives a lot of things. And there's a lot in that question. And no one's really in the, you know, kind of book tour podcast circuit ever asked me that. So it's really important to bring out those points that, that you just mentioned. I'll take them roughly in order. You know, so, so yeah, when there are new ideas in science, that's really where true breakthroughs come in. Um, however, a lot of times people will say, make the following argument. Um, Einstein had a lot of great, had a lot of ideas. Um, and, and Einstein was ridiculed, you know, he was bad in math, he got kicked out of school, whatever, there's some stories apocryphal, some are not. Um, and, uh, and I, I too was kicked out of school, and I too am not good in math, but you know, here's this theory, and if you are uh, willing to, you know, to go over it and help me publish it with your credentials, I'll share my fraction of the Nobel Prize with you. And um, uh, <laughs> I get letters like that, you know, once a week maybe, and the funny thing is, is like there, there is no logical syllogism between, you know, Einstein had some crazy ideas and I have crazy ideas. Einstein won a Nobel Prize. I'm going to win. That does not the way that science works. So it is true that sometimes things that are most important in science are revolutionary and serendipitous, meaning you didn't seek them out. They fell into your lap quite, quite simply. Uh, but that doesn't mean you're just dumb luck and that you didn't know what you were doing and you just, uh, you know, here I go and I win a Nobel Prize. No, instead, it has to do with the fact that you knew enough about the science to question yourself first. And a scientist should always think like the sucker at the poker table. If you can't find him or her, then you're the sucker. You're the patsy. You're the fool. And in science, you have to always think that you're the fool, that you made a mistake because you wanted to win a prize or because you wanted to get tenure or because you wanted to get, you know, first authorship or citations and whatever. You know, we don't have like, you know, a billion, you know Fortune 500. You know, we don't have billion dollar paydays, you know, my salary is a fixed, I mean, people can look up my salary, <laughs> you know, it's published in the University of California website. Uh, but so, you know, we, we don't get money for being smarter. We don't get, you know, like necessarily, and there's a lot of smart, a lot more smart people than people that can win the Nobel Prize. Um, and so the question as to, you know, how do these great breakthroughs depend on funding? 
that is a big thing that's connected to, to the Nobel Prize. In other words, fields that win Nobel Prizes receive a lot more funding, a lot more authority, a lot more attention than fields that don't. People that do, likewise, and they get cited more often, which is the currency of the field. I mean, if you win a Nobel Prize and you share it with two other people, your take-home pay in America is less than uh, $175,000. Not bad, uh, but it's certainly, you know, their prize is worth 10 times as much, right? So, uh, so you don't do it for the money, and so, but you might do it for the funding, which is not money that you get in your pocket. You might do it to build an experiment or to build a research group to pursue a theoretical project. And yeah, some things are, are so out of the mainstream that they uh, can, can be considered so high risk that they may not be worth um, you know, the even incredible reward because the foundations on which they're based on are maybe not as legitimate as some other science. So I would say you, you, the first tool a scientist must employ is, is his or her skepticism, that what's something new is most likely wrong. You know, when you come up with something, oh, Einstein's theory of relativity is wrong. No, you're wrong. I mean, I can say that most of the time. Just like I can say most scientific projects are failures. That sounds weird, right? I mean, it sounds like, wow, that's Keating guy's kind of pessimistic about science. No, I love science. It's one of my favorite things on, the, on earth besides my family, right? So it gives me the greatest joy and the deepest um, satisfaction. But when you do an experiment for four decades and you cost billions of dollars and you employ and fire thousands of people and hire and fire again, uh, and the turnover is so great that even if you win a Nobel Prize you know, at the end uh, for doing something, it's not clear that it was worth the sacrifice. And it's not clear that we haven't set up a reward mechanism in science that is overlooking smaller and smaller uh, incremental science in favor of these huge breakthroughs, black hole center on the cover of a man, you know, like things like that, that, that then perpetuate a media industrial complex that I don't think is good for science. It didn't exist before the 1940s, say, and uh, it's not clear it's, it's, it's as beneficial as it could be. So I, I'm more of a people investing in people and smaller experiments, even though I'm leading a hundred million dollar project right now. Um, and, and that couldn't have come about were it not for the failure described in my book, uh, Losing the Nobel Prize, about the BICEP2 experiment at the bottom of the world in Antarctica. Man, amazing answer. Well, as you were saying that, I, I kind of popped up a series of questions that I'd love to ask. It might yeah. be slightly too aside, but there's a point to it. So what do you believe are the biggest problems facing humanity right now? Ah, so there's, there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of problems facing humanity that I think only some of which science can 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 solve. I think, you know, personally, beyond the, the, the need for food and shelter and physical security, you know, there's something called Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which tells uh, an educator in some cases, you know, how are you going to teach and how do people learn? Well, it turns out, you know, for example, I just taught you, you know, a couple minutes ago, the three biggest questions, you know, the, the origin of the universe, the origin of elements, the origin of life and consciousness. So those are the three biggest questions. Now, you can tell me those back probably and not get them wrong because they're the most recent things I taught you. But if you had a gun to your head and, you know, some rival podcaster is, you know, like, how dare you take number one, Matt? I'm going to put, you know, put the drop on you, man. Um, <laughs> that, well, no one would do that, you know. That's what the to... podcast world is like, man. It's cutthroat. I'm just getting hate mail all the time. <laughs> uh, but so you wouldn't remember it because there, you have a hierarchy of needs that puts your physical security and safety at the top. So, um, so I think humanity also kind of on a macrocosm takes that microcosmic perspective. It takes the needs, the hierarchical structure of needs where we need to be physically safe. And that includes, you know, the planet itself has to be physically safe. Um, you know, you need to have food, you need to have shelter, you need to have peace. 
you need to have a lack of warfare. I mean, I'm only talking to you today and not in some military lab because the United States is a peace-loving country and a democracy. Uh, in other countries, I'd be forced, you know, if I have any math or science ability, I'd be making weapons that, you know, basically at gunpoint. If I ever left the country, they torture my family. Uh, so, so there's huge blessings that we have in being in America. I think getting the rest of the world, and Canada, obviously, you guys up north know how to do it pretty well, too. Um, uh, so uh, we're blessed to live in a peaceful Western you know, society in this case. There are many Eastern societies, too. Um, but on the other hand, uh, once you get beyond that, then I think meaning is the biggest need that people have, that people have a, a need to ha have a reason to get up, to do what they do, to have a purpose. Some people, it's their children. Some people, it's, uh, it's their job. Uh, and some people it's, it's less, you know, kind of elevating pursuits. I believe that meaning, the search for meaning is what animates me and, and, and my desire to understand as much as I can about the universe before I die and knowing that life is short and the ultimate aim of mankind is dust and that I will be this dust in the universe. You will, everyone we know and love will be. Um, and so it's this fragile fragility. Every morning I wake up, you know, before I try to meditate, which is very difficult with young kids running around, but, but, you know, I try to do that with my herbal tea and, you know, get my, get my Zen on like you. Uh, but, uh, but, but then I think just for a second, life is fragile and you just survived a miniature death. Like last night was like a miniature, not like every night is that brutal, you know, uh, but, you know putting kids to bed can be, but, uh, but, <laughs> but, but you wake up every day, life is so fragile, man. And, and you want to take that as a gift and every day realize that it's only possible if you have a sense that you have an ultimate meaning and purpose for your life every day. Man, what a beautiful answer. I love that. Well, it, it, it segues slightly into my second question, only when you think about the first part, when you're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, water, shelter. And the scenario that I've offered as a thought experiment to the listeners a few times is, you know, I hashtag Team Earth. If there are ETs, which I think that we disagree or have different views yeah. on, on that, and you, you have a, probably a big telescope that can look, mm -hmm. um, you know, if they're looking down, they're going to be looking at this really violent group of like amateur people that they can make weapons and technology, but they beat each other over their head and they're more effective at killing. But what if we united, you know, Team USA, like the Olympics of scientists and engineers, and we, we took away the money equation. We're like, okay, everybody in the world needs food. Everybody in the world needs shelter. Everybody in the world needs, um, you know, peace or whatever the case is, like engineering that. Do you think if we did that, it would be possible for us to really turn the planet around, clean the oceans, create clean food, create housing for all people? I, I think that, that we would go a long way to doing that. I think that we would have, uh, I think we would have a tremendous, uh, you know, kind of head start, but I don't think it's in any way guaranteed that, just having the needs met leads to, you know, the munificence, the beneficence, et cetera. Because I think that, um, you know, there also has to be, be a, a kind of a, a, a positivity to the need, right? Some, some awful human beings on earth, I mean, Venezuela going on right now, like they have a desire to subjugate, they have meaning and their meaning comes from hurting, um, et cetera. Like you're saying, these aliens looking down that I don't believe exist, but you do. Uh, <laughs> that, um, but I, I think that mankind is, is not inherently evil, but I don't think we're inherently good. I don't think that we have an inherent propensity to do good, and therefore we must control and subjugate our evil propensities so that we drive it out as much as possible. Not that we'll ever be purely good or, or, or not, but, um, but that we can, we can supersede them. But it takes struggle, just like working on your body, working on, on your mind, your education. 
these things don't come about without struggle. And I think that's a key element. That's a key thing that sometimes people want a shortcut and they want to go up the ladder quicker than they're actually going to be able to do. And so they slip. That's a great answer. I was going to take a, a note just saying why struggle is necessary because it, it's a part of it. And I see sometimes in the self-help spirituality community, we can go a little bit really far away in like the law of attraction and positivity where it almost negates the struggle. And some of these ideas, I'm like, well, if it doesn't work with a pro athlete or a high achiever, then it's not going to work. Like no pro athlete has ever just been like, I'm not going to struggle and it's all going to be roses. You know, the training and that process is difficult and we learn a lot from our failures and it, and we're kind of guided in a way. And sometimes when we're in that experience it's not ideal um, but it usually serves as a purpose for us to grow so what I wanted to dive into a little bit is around the nature of consciousness I know it's you know you you're, you're curious about that and I'm I'm wondering like a few different things like if you were this is from Lewis Howes he asked a great question he's like the three truths if you are going to just you know uh, you forget everything what three truths would you empower yourself with or you have children if you're like hey I, I'm going to bestow upon you the three most important things about life um, so you can navigate this mayhem in, in the most empowered way and um, yeah we'll, we'll leave it with that I know I want to add something onto that but once you after once you talk about it I'll remember so, so you're asking me like my truths or you're asking me like, yeah, if you were, if you were to like what you would empower your daughter with or, or yourself or, or I don't know if it's a son or daughter, sorry, but uh, like, you know, what of, of the nature of reality and experiencing this, what kind of truths would you give them or like the most important piece of advice? Yeah, so I, so I, I call myself, you know, a practicing agnostic, which is unusual, but I am Jewish and I do uh, practice the, you know, many of the rituals and the laws of Judaism. And I do believe in the uh, in sort of the, the power of the Ten Commandments, and uh, and it's very deep. And I think you know one of those uh, commandments, uh, and I talk about this in my book. Like, how can a scientist? Come on, you're supposed to be a scientist. My atheist scientist friends say, you know, how can you possibly believe in this nonsense fairy tale stuff? And I say, well, you know, it's interesting. Look at the fifth commandment, which I'm not sure everyone's familiar with. So I'll just say it's like honor your mother and your father, so that the days of your life may be long. I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting because not only does it tell you what to do, it says there's going to be a reward. And what is that reward? And how is that reward going to be communicated to you? And it also says a couple other things. First of all, it says something about your mother. And you have to realize this, this thing, and I don't know if, uh, you know, how many of your, your um, listeners out there will, will write books or have written books perhaps. <clears throat> um, but the, there's a saying in the book, you know, writing industry, I'd rather have one reader 100 years from now than 100 readers a year from now. In other words, I, I'd love to speak into the future and leave this book, as I tried to do with Losing the Nobel Prize, a legacy, as a will, as a gift to my children. Um, and, and I have both sons and daughters. And, and to have that as, a, as a, something that's tangible, physical, written down, code of how I want it to behave and, and how I want them to behave. Uh, and also going through the struggle of dealing with my own father, who uh, he and I had a difficult relationship and yet, even when I was at the peak of my career and kind of the best optimal point of scientific achievement, I was at the South Pole. I tried to get there my whole life. It was so interesting. And I was on the path to win a Nobel Prize, which I had wanted to do since I was a young kid. I got there and I had to turn around and go back. And I go back and, and, and comfort somebody who had, you know, just honestly done a lot of damage to me as a kid. You know, no, nothing, you know, violence, of course. Uh, thankfully, but but on the same token, I felt compelled to do that, not because I wanted to. You know, the tenth, the fifth command doesn't say I have to love him. It doesn't say that because it knows you can't love everybody. Not all parents are are worthy of, but you have to respect them. 
It also says you have to honor your mother. And think about it, man. This book, I mean, I don't care if you believe it or not, but I'm just saying this book is at least 3,000 years old. And it was talking about rights and obligations owed to women at a time when women were considered like chattel, like like basically fungible cash that you could give away and sell and take. And there's lots of problematic things I know in the Bible. And believe me, I, I read it in Hebrew, Aramaic, I understand it. Um, and I know about the problem, I'm not afraid to. That's why I'm an agnostic, but I'm a, I'm a practicing agnostic. What does that mean? That means I go to temple. I, 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 I discuss you know, religious topics. I learn about the Jewish view on parenting. I learn about the Jewish view on life and after death and think about things like that. And for me, with my kids, just that one commandment, um, if they can honor me, that means I will have lived a life that's worthy of honor. And by extension, just like I always say, the word uh, scientist in, in Russian, not Hebrew, but Russian, it means one who was taught. So it means you're a scientist. Your job is to teach people and to be a student and a scholar. I hope my kids will be students and scholars, not of science necessarily, although some of them want to, uh, and especially my daughters, which is really cool. Uh, but, but on the other hand, token, I want to have, a, um, I wanna have a, a life that shows them that you have to live to serve and also to be a leader. And I think that that's kind of the, the commonality that I find between Judaism and Christianity. I was Catholic for a little while in my life. Um, and so to have that code, I've got 10 commandments, you know, I can give you, I can give you seven more, but, but those are really kind of the way that I like to structure things in the future and then apply to my scientific children, my ideological children as well. I want them to be students. I want them to be teachers and I want them to continue this vast chain so that it stretches from the past all the way into the future. Amazing, man. That's a beautiful answer. Well, why don't you just quickly ramble off the other seven principles? Because it creates an ethos, you know, with, with I think, you know, religions that I've studied quite a bit um, and going to the Parliament of World Religions, 212 different religions. Um, and, you, and you look and, and you know, I think about a, a child, how do you pick the right one? And it bothers me when there's a heaven and hell, but you know what? There could be. I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, but you know, the heck, there could be. But what I do like is I like the ethos when it's uh, uh, what I see to be a positive ethos, but some of the ethos is not so positive. You know, yeah. there's like depression and things like that. Um, and that, that to me is like a little bit of a different animal. So maybe you can share yeah. some of those other seven principles because I'm yeah, sure. so the other seven are just the other 10 commandments, but I'll highlight a couple of them. The, the second commandment, uh, which is talking about idol worship that became huge to me, Matt. I never thought like I would worship an idol. I never thought a scientist would worship an idol in, in general. And then I read the story, I don't, and I don't know how familiar, I don't expect you to be super familiar with the golden calf. It's a story of in, the, in the Old Testament where the Jews leave Egypt, the supernatural miracles, God, you know, throws, splits a Red Sea, and he does things with, with uh, lightning bolts and kills only the firstborn. I mean, purely miraculous, toys with Egypt. And then uh, something like uh, seven weeks later, the Jews who had just been freed from slavery, they come out and say, we want to go back to Egypt. We, we had it better in Egypt. <laughs> as slaves than we had in uh in the desert as free men and women uh so that was that was really weird i'm like aren't you supposed to be smart like isn't that kind of like what they say i mean i'm not i'm taking any personal credit there but that's you know sometimes a stereotype i said they sound really stupid and then the other thing that they did was they took golden rings and they took off their rings and they took off their earrings and they melted it now this is gold that they had on their body they melted it in a pot and out came a golden calf. That's, that's the story. Okay, you can say if it's a metaphor or allegory, whatever, I don't care. But the point is that human nature hasn't changed at all. We make idols and then we worship those idols. We make a little silhouette. You don't think that like, um, you know, the day after the Oscars, you know, that people don't like carry and sleep with that thing and that they don't like feel like they've made it, their life is better. I mean, you hear their speeches. 
Well, the same thing happens with scientists when they win a Nobel Prize. A lot of them, not all of them, thankfully. Some of them, I have many, many friends that have gone back to work the next day like nothing happened. But many of them aspire to it. And, and worse yet, the people that support science that you asked about earlier, the funding agencies, they make it into, a, into an idol. They make the Nobel Prize. If you look at our field, we've awarded these dollars and it went to these Nobel Prize literally on the website of these science funding agencies. Uh, and I feel like that's also happening. There's plenty of false idols in science. I did a video called um, what's, more, um, uh, what's a Bigger Leap of Faith, God or the Multiverse? And again, I'm never going to argue theology. I'm never going to say, you should be a Christian, Matt, or you should be a Jew, or I should be a Buddhist, whatever. That's personal. I will never argue theology. It's super personal. And I've, I've debated, and I've had great conversations with Muslim, Jews, Christians, atheists. I mean, 70% of my scientist colleagues declared themselves atheists or agnostic, and 90% don't believe in God actively. So, um, so, and yet, they have things like the Nobel Prize, like things um, that are almost also without evidence. And for my mind, that sort of borderlines, uh, borderlines on a form of idolatry. I actually think E.T. is a form of idolatry, you'll be sad to hear, uh, because it sort of represents this, this life after life, this possibility that given enough time and space that we have this ability that life will find a way, as Jeff Goldblum said, and you know, Jurassic Park scientist Jeff Goldblum. Uh, and, and I think sometimes it's wishful thinking. And scientists should be the last ones to engage in wishful thinking. And the reasons why they do that, I think sometimes have to do with their atheism, that they really cannot even countenance being, uh, being religious. Um, but, you know, so I try to bridge that ground, tell the scientists that they, that, you know, to check their own biases. And then I tell the religious people, look, you guys, if you wanna know the mind of God, there is no clearer, um, there is no clearer uh, microscope than science. And, if, and to me, that is the secret magic, the secret sauce of science, its ability to know universal truths, truths that apply here on Neptune and on Proxima Centauri. Hmm. So what are some of those universal truths? And the other thing too about science is like it changes with the technology we have to measure, right? Like what we believe yeah. now, we didn't believe before. And so right. sometimes but, we discover something new. Like when you look at the quantum physics double slit experiment, and all of a sudden particles are disappearing and reappearing. Yeah, it's yeah. like yeah, you're left with this mystery. That's a great, that's a great point. Uh, yeah, no one's ever mentioned that to me. So yes, exactly as you're saying, there are truths, but it's not like all of a sudden today, Einstein is right, and then tomorrow, everything is wrong. Like for example, Newton's laws in 1680s, that guided the Apollo 11 spacecraft to the moon 50 years ago next month. So that's pretty amazing, and they didn't need quantum theory to do it. They didn't need gravitational theory of Einstein. Uh, but Einstein came along and said, well, look, actually there could be other phenomena in, embedded in gravity that Newton would never find out about the, the, how mercury were, how it orbits the sun, how certain light uh, 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 artifacts can be deflected by mass, and how waves of gravity can emerge from violent um, eruptions in space-time. And so it, doesn't, it gets more and more refined. I like to think of it as adding more decimal places in some sense. But sometimes you do get a paradigm shift, like an electron, physical, mathematical, and, and uh, actual element uh, or object can be in two places at once. So of course it doesn't comport with your, with your ideology of how things should behave because you are a classical object. You're no you know, quantum tigers coming out you know, from two different you know, directions and, and emerging from four-dimensional space-time. So uh, we learn more, we discover more. Sometimes it's completely serendipitous. We didn't expect it, we found it by accident. And those are the purest scientific discoveries because you're not looking for them. You're not biased to uncover them and confirm through your preconceived notions the way that nature ought to be. 
So there are universal truths that matter is made of fundamental particles that are indivisible, that energy is conserved, uh, that there are properties of uh, certain, certain other objects that can, that can never be uh, mutated in any way. And we know that and we can measure back as far as you know, billions of years in the, in, the, uh, in the past and billions of light years out into space. It's just phenomenal, the range of scales over which we can uh, uh, test the laws of nature. And yet, and yet we don't know the birthday of the universe in a certain sense. We don't know if the universe uh, existed for all time, if the universe came into existence on a certain day at a certain, you know, corresponding to a certain day. I like to say the one question I want to ask God, you know, after 120 years on earth is, you know, what happened on the Tuesday before the Big Bang? Because that involves everything, quantum mechanics, classical mechanics, the law of gravity, cosmology, the Big Bang, the Big Crunch potentially, the multiverse, all these different ideologies put into one question, succinct as possible. That's the universal truths that science allows you to potentially address using tools such as the ones that my colleagues and I are building in places like the Atacama Desert and the South Pole. Holy smokes, you said a lot there. So there's a, there's a lot of things I could, a lot of directions I could go. I guess the one I want to ask, because you talked a little bit about theology or God, you know, and consciousness can be one and the same. What are your views on a God or spirit? If we're talking about the origin of the universe, right? Well, you know, there could be an origin of the universe. I, I'm in this space, you know, this world, this planet, and we look out and there's other planets and galaxies and all kinds of stuff. And you're trying to figure out where did that emerge from? Emerge from nothing. But my consciousness is also kind of separate and a part of it. Like I'm an individual part of it experiencing the whole. And so if I'm experiencing my existence, yeah. I'm looking at the origin, you know, do you think that that consciousness, the awareness that, you know, I perceive as me just dies and then I'm, then that was, that was it. Is there a force, maybe nature, spirit, universe, or do you, does it go down to like science? Because, you know, Theology is going to say there's a God and there's a man in the sky sometimes that's created all this and he's, you know, super powerful. Science will say, hey, well, we know we've got a big bang and this isn't as scientific. But then just consciousness to me in itself is spiritual because it, it gives you choice. You know, you can kind of choose to run over the baby, which might not be a great choice, right? Or you could go help the baby. You know what I mean? And then, then now you're kind of interacting with this thing. And just that alone feels like there's something you're inter interacting with. And what is that thing? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually have uncovered the answer to that question. And I know the, how to prove the existence of God. And the following proves that. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm back. Uh, that would be pretty funny. Um, so you actually touched on a ton of stuff there. So I guess, you know, you and I are doing this dueling awesomeness where we're, you know, kind of just raising 10 questions for every one question we ask. Um, so I'll, I'll try to answer um, as in a practical sense, because I'm a pragmatist and I feel like, you know, we can debate reality and we can debate the existence of these things. The, the practical answer is the following. The, the reason that, you know, Judaism appeals to me so much, the word Israel which is the name of the Jewish people given in the Bible, that means wrestles with God. Isra and then El means God's name in, in ancient, uh, in ancient uh, Hebrew. So Yisra means to struggle and wrestle. That doesn't mean, it's very different than like Islam, which means you know, peace or submission to God. Um, and, and I always think that it's, it's, it's wonderful to have the ability in Judaism. And, and, and actually the second holiest book in Judaism is called the Talmud. It's 2,700 pages long. And it's all about arguments and people are fighting with each other. There's no authority in it. And I always think it's wonderful because, you know, there's stuff in there that I don't, you know, can't, can't really fully understand Kabbalah and things like that. 
but but there's um, that tradition is very scientific and people laugh, you know, but it's true. It's like the nature of science is that Einstein, it can be wrong, was wrong, and will be proven wrong more and more in the future. The more we know about science, he made tremendous blunders. Even he characterized them potentially as blunders. So um, there's no authority. And in Judaism, the ultimate authority is God, but we don't know God. We can't know him. There's a saying in Hebrew, you know, if I knew him, I would be him. And we can't fully comprehend that. I'll just say, that, you know, people say, well, who created God? You know, what created... So those questions are also attributable in science to things like the multiverse or to quantum physics. Did the laws of physics exist before the existence of the universe? Did the laws of mathematics exist? Did a triangle still have three equal sides, uh, you know, uh, equilateral triangle? Or, or, or did it not? Did those things make sense? Are they purely abstract and mathematical and therefore eternal? Um, or are they just practically eternal? Like if you test the law of gravity on Earth, you'll it'll get the same thing on Venus. But then a trillion years from now, when anti-gravity takes over, perhaps, uh, you won't be able to measure the same phenomenon. You won't even have a galaxy to live in and to observe. So, you know, in a practical sense, you asked about things like the afterlife in there. Um, one of the other things about Judaism is, is that it doesn't, it doesn't speculate on the afterlife because um, it's a concession to the fact that people will really think about the afterlife and get obsessed with the afterlife and perhaps not live as well on earth as they could if there is an after. It's not mentioned in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament at all, uh, in fact, the afterlife. But Judaism does affirm the existence of it, but we don't have any idea of what it's about. So I like to think, you know, if God exists, I should act the way that he exists, right? There's no, there's not going to be like some, some real punishment. Let's say you act as a kind, generous Buddhist and, and you, and you follow the golden rule, essentially, which is a biblical law, but, but you follow that law or Christian law. And, and, and then you come up in your 120th birthday, you die, you go up to heaven, wherever, and there is a God. And you're like, oh man, I should have been like a Hasidic Jew and, you know, whatever. I should have used the beard for Judaism instead of, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I love the beard. I'm envious of the beard. Uh, <laughs> but, but God's not going to say to you, Matt, you know, you, you, you could have done this. You, could have, you shouldn't have eaten that shrimp. No. <laughs> you, you lived life in accordance with my will and what I want. If he exists, I don't know if he exists. But that's the deliciousness of science and God. We get to, to play with and, and, and contend and do battle against the laws of nature, which are inherently unknowable in, its, in their completeness. Um, I, you know, we can't completely know how. And we, we have the most basic, bare-bones knowledge of consciousness. I would say we have the level of understanding of consciousness that Newton had of quantum physics in the 1600s. <laughs> it's just, we're at the most earliest uh, notion of what consciousness is. Does that mean we should stop? No, it means we should go deeper. And that's why I feel like we should go deeper. But if you are an atheist, uh, it's fine. I think you can be an ethical, wonderful human being uh, as an atheist. I, I just think that the ultimate question to me is, does God exist? And can we, you know, know more about the ultimate laws of nature? Um, and, and, you know, perhaps the realization that I had not too long ago, that science and nature are fundamentally different things. They have almost nothing to do with each other. In other words, you, you can't try to prove the Bible is correct, as I foolishly attempt to do in my book. I talk about how I can prove or test the Bible um, uh, through this fifth commandment test. Uh, but, but also, I also want to, to realize that there are things that the science books can't give you. And those are, those are very different things. And one is knowledge and one is wisdom. And it's up to every individual to kind of ascertain what she or he thinks is the most important. Amazing, man. I could talk to you all day and I love just firing questions at you because yeah. you have such yeah, a, a wonderful, yeah, you have a wonderful point of view. I'm going to let you know because I'm going to throw a lot of things at you, but there's yeah. 10 minutes before you have a hard yeah. stop. I'm sure you're That's a busy right. man. 
So, you know, you're, you're looking out into outer space and, you know, I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, ETs, cause there a lot of people believe I'm one of those people. Um, but you have things like ancient civilizations, the pyramids, the, uh, I think it's the Denisova cave finding, um, you know, humans a lot older than, than we think like traditional science, I think says what, 4,000 years or something like that. And that's when humans came about, but then we've got now evidence of much older civilizations. So what is your perspective on, you know, why do you think that there, there isn't ETs or spaceship or intelligent life out in the infinite universe? Because even what we measured is just such an extraordinary no, I know. Uh, and, and space. Yeah, so I'll, t- I'll tackle that on two fronts. One is that um, uh, it, it is sort of the probability and the argument from you know, how uh, improbable our conversation is right now that led up to right now. So to have this conversation, we needed to have technology. We needed to have consciousness and this, this ability. We need to be alive. We need to have a planet. The planet had to survive enough time for us to have evolution kick in. Um, we had to evolve from, from subordinate creatures and, 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 and DNA had to propagate and form. DNA had to form from the basic building blocks of the universe, hydrogen and helium, uh, and the cores of stars. Those stars had to explode and become supernovae. Uh, the, um, the universe had to form in the first place. So let's say there's nine different things that led to today. Of course, there's an infinite number of things. And let's say like each one of those has a probability of occurring of one in a thousand. In other words, like there was a one in a thousand shot. If you had a thousand universes, at least one of them would develop um, would develop Zoom, you know, teleconference calls uh, equivalent <laughs> out of you know radio waves, etc. So, uh, so each one of those, and I think the probability, according to many many people, is extremely lower for each one of those nine different factors. Let's say there's nine of them, and each one's one in a thousand shot of happening. So you have you have uh, a one over a thousand to the ninth power. <laughs> Well, that comes out to be uh, 10 to the minus 27. So you have a one in 10 to the 27 chance. Now, just, this is speaking very loosely. I can go through it. It's an argument related to what's called the Drake equation. And, and, and it gives you kind of the probability of extraterrestrial intelligence encapsulated in this equation. The problem is um, there's only, there's only, I shouldn't say it like that. There's 100 billion stars in our galaxy and there's 100 billion galaxies more or less. That's 100 billion squared, which sounds like a big number, 10,000 billion billion. So it's 10 to the fourth times 10 to the 18th, which is 10 to the 22nd. Uh, so that's a big, but remember, I just said the probability of those one in a thousand shots to the ninth power is 10 to the minus 27. So it's, there's a thousand times fewer planets, if you like, than planetary chance. Now, this is, any scientist out there is going to crit- criticize a lot of this. But I'll refer them to a completely believing scientist uh, who's an atheist, and he's also a, um, and he's also a, a climate expert in climate on extra, uh, and extraterrestrials. He claims that there are roughly about that many potential civilizations, uh, the, the chance of uh, the same probability levels. And so he gets that there could have been a hundred or a thousand civilizations like ours in the entire observable universe over the entire history of the universe, which means that over 14 billion years, <laughs> there, uh, over a sphere that has a diameter of 90 billion light years, there could have been a thousand civilizations like Earth capable of producing climate change. That's what his book is about. Adam Frank is his name. Light of the Stars is his book. Um, he's a really brilliant guy. And, uh, and so you have a thousand distributed over the most immense span of space and time possible. Uh, the odds of us being around, living long enough to encounter one of those is so small. So there are arguments like that that I can give you. Then there's the arguments, well, what about the evidence for you know, sightings and stuff like that? So I always like to point out that astronomers like me we spend almost every free moment of our night times looking up at the night, 
sky through the most powerful telescopes with the most hypersensitive sensors that without which we couldn't have this conversation because astronomers basically invented the, the, the uh, CCD camera that we're using to photograph this and we invented uh, the cell phone which some of this communication being carried over um, uh, through the same laboratories that invented these technologies. So it's just, uh, it's just inconceivable that astronomers looking at the night sky continuously night after night year after year, for the last 400 years since Galileo, that no astronomers have had you know, double-blind or, or confirmed or ratified evidence for this. By the way, if you want to win a Nobel Prize, it's not a bad way to go about it. And I know that you know, there are a lot harder <laughs> ways to win a Nobel Prize from personal experience. So a lot of these things uh, turn out to be uh, you know, explainable by much simpler phenomena. It's a, it's a process called Occam's Razor. Yeah, I now, think you could say something about God, right? And and I'm not going to debate that, but but I do feel like sometimes ET becomes a way out, and says, well, that's how we got here. So we're just, you know, it's called panspermia. It kind of sounds dirty, but it's not. Uh, you know, we came from an extraterrestrial civilization. I have some friends I think are extraterrestrials, but but I'm not going to get into that. That's, those are faculty meeting only conversations. <laughs> oh man well yeah well i think it's important to be you know skeptical i think i'm a lot more skeptical now that i've had so many podcasts i've had so many interactions i've had so yeah. many people who believe certain things and i think that you know just just uh, skepticism with seeking understanding you know and then what is that how is that useful to you because i feel like some people can look at the et thing but but it's just an ungrounded uh way of life and and it's not helping in in any kind of way and so I think with anything, we can go too far right, too far left. And the idea is to explore our reality. And, and I, I like the idea that there, there are other civilizations out there because Star Trek is cool um, and uh, Star Wars is cool. And it would be nice to know that there are neighbors in the universe for, for me personally. But I think that it does take away sometimes from people like living a good life now. And you kind of mentioned that in there. You know, if there is an afterlife, you know, and some of the religions will actually do that. will say, you know, you give up this life for the next one. And I don't know if that's a great idea, right. not an ethos that really resonates with me. Make this the best life. Enjoy the mystery. And it's all a mystery. And coming from someone like you is an absolute brilliant human being exploring the deepest mysteries, basic telling everyone's like, you know what? We know very little. And that's kind of what I share in the podcast is like what we actually know about reality is, is very little. So what can we do to live a great life by our own standards? So I just want to thank you so much for your work, for coming on the show, for being who you are and answering all my questions. I fired at you in such a succinct and wonderful way. Where can people find out more about you? Is there anything that you wish that I'd asked? Um, and just thanks for coming on the show. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the only thing I, I wish that you would ask, uh, and I should say people can get in touch with me at briankeating.com and they can sign up for my mailing list and join my YouTube channel. And if you are in the U.S., unfortunately, I can't do it in Canada, but if you're in the U.S. and you join and you use hashtag Bel Air, as in Matt Belair, as your last name when you sign, I don't care what your last name is, but you sign up for my mailing list, use your own real first name, and use your last name, Belair, with a hashtag in front. Uh, if you're one of the first 10 people to do that, I'm going to send a piece of space dust, a piece of genuine space dust that's 4.5 billion years old. And this is the villain of my book, Losing the Nobel Prize. It's sort of the, the element, the entity that confounded this cosmic quest. Uh, that I had to understand and glimpse the origin of the universe. So first 10 listeners that do that, hashtag Bel Air is your last name when you sign up. I'm also on Twitter, Dr. Brian Keating. Someday I hope to get you to follow me, but I'm not, I'm going to hold my breath. I only have a couple of Nobel Prize winners following me, so it's, it's okay. Uh, I'll, I'll survive, but, um, but I really thank you for that opportunity. And the last thing is really just to, uh, is just to realize that 
whatever your goal is, whatever your quest is out there to be number one in whatever your field is, know that it's very difficult and only one person can do it. And I remember looking at, you know, the, the world champions of any sport and they always say, oh, we'll be back next year. And unless you're the Patriots, uh, it's pretty low probability that will happen. So the odds are you should enjoy the struggle, the strife, the quest and striving to be the best. And I wish I learned that, that lesson earlier. Now that I know it, I feel like I've come out of the closet. I've been a new lease on life. I feel liberated and free to do and confront the greatest puzzles and mysteries that there are. So I hope people will stay in touch. YouTube, uh, Dr. Brian Keating, Twitter, Dr. Brian Keating, and my website. And of course, my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, which is more a memoir of what it feels like to be a scientist and wrestle with these things amid all the personal tragedies and struggles that go on along the way. Amazing. Well, Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'll definitely follow you on Twitter. I invite everybody to check out your, your book. It seems extraordinary. You have an amazing podcast. What's the title of your podcast? Called Into the Impossible. It's part of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination here at UCSD. Uh, you can find it from YouTube as well. Um, and it's linked from my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keaton. Amazing. It's space dust. Oh my God. Yeah. Space so everybody dust. make sure to get the book, follow, subscribe. Story, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. yeah amazing. Genuine space dust 4.5 or more billion years old. And I'll send you a little chemical survey to prove it. I'll send one to you anyway, Matt. Cause you've been yeah, I would love that. Well, thanks so much. Those. Thanks so much, man, for what you're doing. I'll have to get you back on the show. Who knows what you're going to talk about next time, but I appreciate what you're doing and uh, thanks for everything. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Matt. Take care. Have a great day. See you guys. Thanks for watching. All right, guys, that wraps up this amazing episode with Dr. Brian Keating. I hope that you enjoyed it, that you learned a lot. Um, an absolutely phenomenally intelligent human being. We have differing opinions on some things, but I really love how he is sharing the story about, you know, moving away from pursuing the Nobel Prize and really connecting with something a little bit more de deeper and meaningful to him. So I invite you to check out his book, Losing the Nobel Prize, a story of cosmology, ambition, and the perils of science's highest honor. Uh, share the episode if you like it. Leave a review in iTunes. Support on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Matt Belair if you enjoyed the show and you want to support. But the best thing, as always, is to do one kind act for another human being today. If you're interested in some coaching, hit me up, mattbelair.com forward slash coaching, or just make an inquiry on the site. Sign up for the email list and just stay awesome. I hope that wherever you are, you're doing all right, that you're whole, that you're loved, that you have enough to eat, that you have friends and family, and that you are healthy. And if you are none of those things, I hope that um, some of those things come your way and just sending you all of my love, joy, peace, compassion, blessings, good vibes, your way to you, the listener, whoever you are, wherever you are. So I hope that you're having an amazing day. Let's come into a state of peace and coherence. Wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath. And now just let it out slowly, filling every cell and every muscle and every fiber of your being with peace, joy, contentment, empowerment, connection, self-love, and ready to take on the rest of the day. So thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode.